Before you grab a seat, uh, why don't you turn to the person next to you, behind you, in front of you, and uh, say, uh, welcome to church, greet them, say hello. Everyone online, we're so thankful that you're joining with us, that you're here with us. Uh, even though you're not here in person, you're here in spirit. And so I welcome you uh, to Red Hills Church. Um, I love our church. I love our church. At our church, it's okay to not be okay, and you can come as you are, and our hope is that you're changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, I, I just want to say I've got some bad news. I've got some bad news. And, and the bad news is this, is that the Oregon Ducks lost yesterday. Did I hear some cheers somewhere? All right. I told you this before. That, that, that the intensity and, and dynamics of my sermon are largely dependent on whether my team wins on Saturday. So before you pray for me on Sunday, pray for my team on Saturday. Uh, and uh, it's super disappointing for me. Some of you Beavers fans are really happy, uh, but uh, that's okay. Some of you college students, you don't even care. You're from California, all right? Maybe you're glad that Stanford won or... You know, I, I, I'm not sure, but, um, but I, I just, I welcome you here today. I'm so thankful that uh, we can gather together and that everyone online is, is with us and, and is a part of what God is doing. I want to remind you, today is the start of a new series, but it's also the start of our tribes, which is our small groups here at the church. And so we have tribes for everyone. We have a group for everyone. Uh, it's a small group of people who talk about Jesus and get to know one another. And for those of you online, we have online groups uh, and uh, we, have, we have groups of, for all ages. Uh, we even have groups for your kids. Uh, so if you go to a group on Tuesday night, you can drop your kids off here. Uh, if you don't go to a group, you can still drop your kids off here. We'll pour into them spiritually and invest into them uh, and give them Jesus. Well, I'm starting a new series called The Journey Home, Finding the Way Back to God. This is what I, I, I think, and this is what I understand, is that a lot of times in different seasons of our life, we can feel far from God. Whether you're new to church and you've been coming for a few months, whether you've been to church for 20 years, whether maybe you've been attending church but you've met, never made a decision for Jesus, you can feel far from God. And part of this series is birthed out of what the Lord has done in my heart and in my life in a season of sabbatical where I took three months off in order for me to find my way back to God and into his presence and into his character. I have to imagine that there are other people experiencing the same thing as well. So the journey home, finding the way back to God. When I was six years old, I have a, a very vivid memory. I, I was, some of you can't believe this, but I was sort of a rebellious child. I know it's hard to believe. I was a little obstinate. I was the youngest of four. Uh, and so I remember arguing with my mom one day. I got so, I was so upset. I was six years old. I don't even remember what the fight was about. But I remember going to my mom and I said, mom, I'm going to run away. And I, you know, I'm six. Like I, you know, all my kids have said that to me throughout the years. I'm going to run away. But I've never said what my mom said. My mom said, go ahead, Aaron. <laughs> Why don't you run away? Because she didn't think that I was going to run 
away. And there's something in my nature. If tells, someone tells me and, call, and calls me to do something that, that, you know, and challenges me and calls my bluff, you, you know what? I'm going to do it. Like, it's still in me. Like, like, like uh, if someone's going to say, Aaron, uh, you know, the, the, the words I hate in, in, in church staff is we've done this before. We've tried this before. That won't work. And I said, oh, okay, let's try and see. All right. I'm going to prove you wrong. Right. I, I know I, I need counseling. And so I said to my mom, I said, I'm going to run away. She says, go ahead. And I'm like, okay. I'm six. I go pack my bag. I put in all the essentials that you need when you run away for a couple days. I put uh, candy. Uh, I, put, um, uh, I, I put my stuffed squirrel. I had this little stuffed squirrel as, as a child. I put him in my backpack, and, and, and I leave. And, and I get about a block away from home, and I think, where am I going? <laughs> I've got no place to run. And so I, I just keep Walking because in my little rebellious heart, I am not going to go back home because my mom gave me permission to run away. And so I just keep walking and I keep walking. I keep walking. And, uh, and, and eventually I find myself in an area of town where I, I said, I think one of my friends lives around here. And so I keep walking. I'm probably a mile, a mile and a half from home. I make my way to my friend's house and I just act like I'm, I show up like this was planned and we start playing. Uh, apparently his mom called my mom. My mom comes and she's like in tears. I mean, she was about to call the cops because her youngest son your little boy uh, of four kids ran away from home. By the way, she never called my bluff ever again after that moment. But I, I, rem I remember that so vividly, and, and I remember the trip home. My mom wasn't upset at me, but I remember the trip home, and I remember getting home, and I remember that feeling of what it's like to come home. You know, I was scared. I was walking through town. Now, we lived in a safe town, but I was six. I imagine my son Bennett leaving, walking through the town, you know, searching for someone's house. I was scared. And even in my journey, even in my rebellious, obstinate heart, I knew that I wanted to go back home. And so when my mom showed up to bring me home, I was so thankful. I was so happy to actually be at home. Now, even today, I don't know, some of you might be like this. Even today, when I go on a trip, when I even go on vacation, it might even be the best trip. It might be even the best vacation. But when I drive down into Newburgh and I start heading up down, then up the hill into my house, I love that feeling of what it's like to be home. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. I think I, a couple people. Thank you. All right. Uh, but may, maybe you've had that feeling before. Maybe, I, I remember my uh, first year away from home as a college student. Any freshman here, freshman, raise your hand, right? The first two weeks of college, especially at a Christian college, it's like church camp, right? You're like, oh, this is great. There's concerts and there's scavenger hunts and there's serve day and there's like all these Bible studies and like this is the greatest thing in the world. And then week three hits and you're like, oh, I've got homework like every day. I've got a lot of homework. And, and, and then you hit about October and some of you might feel homesick. You're like, I just want to go home. And you're jealous because one of your friends lives in Tigard and he's living, you know, in Newburgh and he can go home every single weekend. But you have that desire for home. I believe every single one of us has a desire to be settled and a desire to be home, a longing in our heart to be home. What is home? Home is this. Home is a place of safety. Home is a place of security. Home is a place of familiarity 
It's a place of belonging where you have a place and you have a role and you have family that love you. And it's just that comforting, settling, safe feeling. And this is what I think and where I want to go for, for our entire series for the next two months is that our yearning and desire for a physical home, I believe, is deeply rooted in our desire to be spiritually at home. Listen, we live east of Eden. We got kicked out of the garden along with Adam and Eve. By the way, you know in the Bible, east is always a vision for bad and what's wrong and evil of the world, and west is always what's good, right? That's why God says your sin is as far as from the east as from the west, and Adam and Eve got kicked out not to the west of Eden. They got kicked out to the east of Eden. And listen, we live in the east of Eden. Eden, trying to find our way back to this unhindered relationship with God. Do you know the entire story of the Bible is about God trying to get his people back into relationship like Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden? Did you realize that? Revelation, uh, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 starts in the garden, right? God created Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden. In Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible ends in a garden-like city, right, the New Jerusalem with a relationship with God. And so God is trying to take us back to this spiritual home, this Eden-like place. Like even, even the New Testament writers talk about this. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter, the apostle Peter writes this, that we are foreigners and, and strangers in this land. Just think about that. Like, we, we are aliens, like, we don't belong here, like, my citizenship isn't here, like, like I'm an exile, and, and he's living in Israel, all right? We don't belong here. Paul says something very similar in Philippians 3.20. He says that we are citizens of what? Heaven, all right? We are citizens of heaven. Just think about that for a moment. Some of you have an Oregon driver's license, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm from Oregon, Right? Some of you have a U.S. passport. If you ever traveled internationally, it's nice to come home and show that passport to be let back in to our country. All right? uh, but, but you know what? You have a heavenly passport. And, and the country of residence is heaven. And, and the uh, assigning authority on there is Jesus. We, we are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of heaven. That is our heavenly Citizenship in our journey in life, I'm convinced of this, our journey in life is to try to get back home, to our spiritual home. Brian and I have felt this many times in seasons throughout our life. It's an unsettling feeling like we don't fully feel at home. And we've come to the conclusion that that desire is not going to happen in a geographical location, but that desire is going to happen in the presence of Jesus. And so for the next six, seven, eight weeks, I want to lead you into the presence of God. I want us to find our way back to God because we live in a culture and we live in a season and we live in a time where there's a lot of distraction and it's easy to leave and run away and get lost in the midst of everything that is happening in our lives. And so what I want to do for the next seven Eight weeks. I say that because I, there, there's no end date to this series. I'm doing something I've never done. I'm just going to start, and it's going to finish when it finishes, all right? And we're going to look at the life of Moses. 
And usually when we look at the life of Moses, we look at the, the exodus and what's happening uh, in, the, in the freedom of Israelites from Egypt. But I want to look, not just of that, I, I want to look at the, the narrative of the life of Moses. I want to look at the details of his life. And I, I want to examine scripture uh, and, and look at who Moses was and what caused him to be able to lead a country through the Red Sea uh, into the desert and lead people closer to God. And I want to, because a lot of times we credit Moses with being that prophet who led people, but, but you know, Moses has a story himself. And before he was Moses on Mount Sinai, he was Moses that was born in Egypt. And so we're going we're gonna to read the life of Moses. In fact, we're going to start in, uh, in Exodus chapter 2. And uh, uh, we're going to read the, the first 15 verses in Exodus chapter 2. But let me, let me just share a couple th things about, about Moses. First of all, uh, Moses is, is so ordinary and normal. Uh, in, in fact, actually he's ordinary and maybe he's abnormal, all right? That's a better, but not abnormal in a good way, all right? He's like, you know, he, he's got a dysfunctional life. Uh, and, and, but he's so normal. I mean, he, his life is so ordinary. And, and I love this about the Bible. I love this about Scripture. Scripture does not sanitize people's lives and give us the best version of them. So the Bible is not your best life now and like the highlight reel of Moses. It's not the Instagram stories of Moses. I mean, it's the stuff that happened behind the scenes. It's stuff that happened in the closet, right? It's stuff that happened just, just hidden away. And, and Moses, by the way, who writes his own story because he wrote the book of Exodus gives us the good and the bad and the ugly. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Moses's life. And, and I love this because it, it shows us this. Whenever I read something like this, it shows us that God does not take the spectacular people of the world and turn them into stars. He takes the dysfunctional, broken people of the world and uses them for messengers of his kingdom and messengers of his glory. Can somebody say Amen. That should give some of you hope today, all right? <laughs> that God does not use those who are already gifted and those who are already talented and those who are already good looking and those who already have everything together. He takes those who know they're most broken and most willing and most available and he says, I can do anything with that person. And that is who Moses is. So Moses' life, right? Last thing before we jump into the text. Moses' life is split into thirds and the narratives. And, and so if you think of these thirds, a third of his life, think of them as acts in a play. So the first third of his life is from ages zero to 40. Zero to 40. The second third is 40 to 80. 40 to 80. Zero to 40 happens in Egypt. 40 to 80 happens in Midian. And the last third of his life is, is 80 to 120. All right? So Moses died at 120. So his life is in thirds. The first part, we'll call that his adolescence, his formative years. The, the second part, th those are the, the golden years of life. Like those are the greatest years of life, right? Some of my people might argue. And there's the latter third, right? The 80 through 120. So we're going to look at the first third of his life. We're going to look at his childhood. And so grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus 2. Let's read verse 1 through 15. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months 
But when he could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. By the way, there is a tie here to Noah. This is the only other time in the Bible where... Uh, where they mention the word ark. It's not the word ark. It's this like little basket. But Moses is the new Noah, all right? Moses is the new Noah. The story continues where God always uses one person, brings them out. His sister, we know her name is Miriam, uh, stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. We don't know how long Moses was there in that basket. It could have been a few hours. It could have been a few days. But, you know, I mean, a screaming baby, hungry, sitting in a basket. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go. Great idea, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. This is important to notice that, Mo that Moses is not named by his Hebrew mother. He's named by his Egyptian mother, Pharaoh's daughter. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that way and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Moses' life in the first 40 years, by the way, some of you are wondering, how do you know he's 40 years old? Because in Acts chapter 7, 23, when Stephen is martyred, he gives this sermon. He says Moses is 40 years old when he left for Midian. And at the first 40 years of his life, uh, the Bible tells a story. And it's this, that Moses is messed up. That Moses is dysfunctional. That he has a dysfunctional childhood, he's got a dysfunctional life, and it ends in murder and cover-up. You know, this section is so short in the Bible that a lot of us miss it. We just think, oh, you know, this is Moses. God is raising him up to be a great man. But look at the details of his life. I want to propose to you, looking at his life from an emotional wounding perspective, think of this. Moses was abandoned by his mother not once but twice. And some of you say, oh, he was abandoned for good reasons. Well, it doesn't matter what reasons you're abandoned for. You, if you've been abandoned, if you've been given up, there are still feelings of abandonment. The reason doesn't matter. It might help you heal later on, but the reason doesn't matter. So he's given up at 90 days old. He's given up at 90 days old. Then he's taken by Pharaoh's daughter and he's given back. 
And we think, oh, great, his mom has a chance to, to raise him. And, and when his mom nurses him, and, and the, the Bible says grew older, most scholars believe that it's when he was weaned, maybe three, four, five, he was given back to Pharaoh's daughter. So he was abandoned again, right, as a, as a five or six-year-old. Uh, he's given back. There's no mention of Moses' father until later on in the text. We don't know if he has a relationship with him. We don't know what his name is at this point. We have no idea who his daddy is. He's raised in Pharaoh's home. Now, he's raised in Pharaoh's home, but he's a Hebrew. In Hebrew and he looked different than everyone in his home. Because Hebrews look different than Egyptians. And so he doesn't feel quite right and quite at home in Hebrew, in, in Pharaoh's household. Now, some of us would look at Moses and we think, oh, what a privileged child. But he was taken from his family and put into Pharaoh's house. So he's not fully accepted by the Egyptians, and we find that out when his father tries to get, when Pharaoh tries to kill him, and he's not fully accepted by the Hebrews because the two ones fighting says, who are you? You're gonna do the same thing to us? I don't want to read too much into the text, but I want to suggest to you something that Moses had to walk through as a 40-year-old. Here, here we go. He probably had deep feelings of loneliness because he was abandoned and he didn't quite belong. He had abandonment issues. He had daddy issues. He had cultural and racial identity issues. And all of this overflowed into a fit of rage where he murdered and covered up the body. And then his surrogate adopted foster daddy, Pharaoh, finds out and he tries to kill him. Now think of Moses' life. He comes out of the womb and Pharaoh has a death warrant on his life. He wants to kill all the baby boys, in Is, uh, the Israelite boys. And then when he's 40, his, 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 his father figure in his life wants him dead. Moses has got issues, right? In the words of Julia Michaels, I got issues and so do you. He's messed up. I could have sang that better, I know. Some of you are like, what song is that? <laughs> He's got problems. He's got dysfunctions. And it all leads to this moment where he kills someone and then he runs away. He kills someone and then he runs away. Let, let me suggest to you that Moses is going through a major crisis of identity. <laughs> right? that, that, that might be an understatement in his life, but, but he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where his home is. He doesn't know who his family is. He doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have any allies at this point. He, he, he is nobody. He is nothing. And what he does is what most of us do when we're in crisis is he runs away. You could say that he has a crisis of identity. Oftentimes, I think that the precursor to finding the way back to God is a crisis of identity. You see it all the time when people turn their life around and find Jesus and ask Jesus in their life. It's usually in a crisis of identity. It's usually something that is happening in their life. And we all, all of us, have crisis, crises of identity, right? I, I, I've, I've taught on this before. I'll briefly go over it. But there are five life transitions that everyone faces, five conversions 
of your life. And all has to do with the age that you are. They say the first conversion of your life is from four to six. From four to six. When you go from toddler to childhood, right? From, from you know, little, little, little kid uh, to, to all of a sudden, like, you have a little more free will, right? I, I've always loved this stage in my kid's life uh, because they can, uh, they can uh, go to the bathroom on their own. Uh, they can uh, pour a bowl of cereal on their own. Uh, they, they can uh, take a shower, take a bath on their own. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of parents call this the golden years of parenting, right, from age 6 to 12, like, where your kids still like you and love you and think you're cool and uh, Disneyland is fun and they'll go on the teacups with you, uh, right? That's the, that's the first conversion of life, the first transition of life. The second one is uh, ages 12 to 16. We all know what happens at 12 to 16, right? The hormones kick in. This is where, uh, where little girls start to become women and little boys start to become men and their bodies change and it's a crisis of identity. By the way, I think this is the most vulnerable population. This is the most vulnerable population. This is why youth ministry actually matters. This is why youth ministry matters. This is why uh, youth ministry in our church matters. We have incredible youth leaders in our church, some sitting even here in this room that have invested their time into pouring their life into teenagers. It's a crisis of identity in that age. The next one is from 20 to 24. Right? Why is this? Because now you, you, you're starting to come out of adolescence into early adulthood. And your brain actually doesn't stop forming until you're 25, 26. So, so you're still forming what you believe and your thoughts and, 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 how, and who you are. And the memories are, 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 are still shaping, and your experiences are still shaping who you are. And the next one is ages 38 to 42. Anybody in that range? Like, that's where I'm at. This is like the, some of you won't, yeah, you're like, oh, I don't want to be listed that old. All right, it's okay, let's embrace it. Uh, and this is the, you know, where you see the classic crisis of identity crisis, where the guy goes and buys a red sports car uh, and, uh, and maybe, you know, looks for a, a new family or a new marriage or, uh, you know, run, r runs away from, from life, right? Or maybe it's the other way around. And then the, the, the last one is ages 55 to 65, and this is where uh, a family usually goes through empty nesting, uh, where the kids move out of the house, unless they never move out of the house, then you never know what that's like, but you have have that uh, empty nesting feeling. What do I do with my life? I've gone to football games uh, my entire life on Friday nights and basketball games and now I, I've got nothing and my kids have their own life. Or what about the last one in retirement when you worked for one job your whole life or one career and then all of a sudden you're done. What do you do with your life? Every season of that is a season of a crisis of identity. And a lot of times we, see, we think of an identity crisis always as negative. I want to tell you, we all go through them. The negative ones are the ones we often see, right? The ones where people act out, the ones that are most visible. But we all go through that in season and transition in our life. And I think Moses is in the midst of one. How do you know you're in a life transition? You feel unsettled in your heart and your soul. You feel like something isn't quite right. You, you, you may not know what, 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 what the story is for you in the future. And in a crisis of identity, you have an option. You have an option to run towards the things of the world and identify yourself with the things that culture wants to give you. You have an uh, opportunity to run towards Jesus and be identified by the things in scripture, and be identified by the word. But we all go through them. We all go through them. And Moses doesn't have a sense of who he is, his identity. He doesn't have a sense of his home. In fact, he has no home. 
And his journey home isn't about going to a physical geographical location. His journey home is about going to meet God out in the desert, to meet God out in Midian. By the way, Moses, we don't know if he holds to the Jewish faith or not. We don't know. The, 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 the Mosaic law hasn't even begun yet, so there's no sacrificial system yet. Moses, my guess would be Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. He was, uh, he was informed by the Egyptian religion, which is polytheistic. We worship many gods, and Pharaoh is this God himself, this intermediary between God and man, and so he is deity in and of Himself. And so Moses goes out to the desert and he leaves to find God, whatever that God might be. He doesn't quite know. And all of his experiences lead him to this moment. All the pain, all the trauma, all the abandonment, all the sins lead him to this point. And this is his story. This is his story. Here's my one point for the day. You can write this down. Finding the way back to God is knowing your own story. It is knowing the narrative and the story of your life. Every person has a story. In fact, I would say this, that we all have three stories in our life. We have the story that was written for you by your parents. This is your childhood. These are all the experiences that you had as a child, the good, bad, and the ugly. This is, this is everything that you experienced as a child. You have a story written for you by your parents. You have a story written for you by yourself. These are the own decisions that you've made in your life, the path that you have taken in your life. You, you began to write and tell a story. And the last one is you have a story written for you by God. And this is the story that everybody wants to know. They want to know, am I in God's story? Am I in God's story? Psalm 139 says that God knew you before uh, you were born, that you were knit in your mother's womb, that he knew you as an embryo. And it says this, that all the days are ordained for you by God. That's a good word, isn't it? That, that, that God has a plan for you. And so there's three stories. And, and, and the key to finding your way back to God is to know your own story because your story shapes how God uses you because God doesn't forget the story and the things that happened to you or, or, or that you did. He actually uses them in the future and he redeems the story for a better way. We have to understand how our story shapes us. One thing I did on sabbatical is because, um, because there, there's not a sport that I like that happens in the summer because uh, I mainly watch football uh, and then I watch basketball, catch March Madness, and then you know, I'll go to a Blazers game when you could go to Blazers games and, um, and then I'd, I'll, I'll watch the, the, the playoffs. But in the summer, it's like a season of fasting for sports. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There's always that season. So if there's not sports to watch, I, I watched a ton of, of sports documentaries, right? All these ESPN 30 for 30s, like, you know, these just documentaries of these athletes and their life. And what's fascinating is, and it's all different sports, what's fascinating is the, the stories and, and, uh, and, and the narrative of these people's life. And it got me following Mike Tyson and his story. And so I watched one on Mike Tyson. And then I watched one, a two-part documentary on Hulu about Mike Tyson, and it was fascinating. Mike Tyson's arguably the best boxer who's ever lived, right? He, he, he was incredible. He would knock out um, heavyweight world champions in 90 seconds or less. I mean, he was a machine. 
But, but the story of Mike Tyson is what we, what we know about Mike Tyson is that he bit the ears off of Evander Holyfield, right? I'm, I'm, you, some of you are too young to remember that, but you remember that. Like even, even uh, uh, Bill Clinton said something uh, about uh, Mike Tyson doing that. And so this documentary tells the story of Mike Tyson. And, and he's in the story and, he, and he's in the documentary at the end, but it tells the story of him as a child. Uh, it tells the story of him growing up in Brooklyn with a single mom who brought boyfriends home all the time that abused her and abused him. It tells the story that uh, his only friends were the pigeons that he raised as a little boy. And, and, and the, the part of where rage came into his heart and into him was when uh, another boy in the neighborhood took one of his pigeons, broke its neck, and threw it at Mike Tyson. And all of a sudden, something happened, overcame him, and he bullied and beat up this other kid. And, and Mike Tyson tells the story. And, and everything that happened to him as a child was channeled into rage and aggression in the ring. And they're telling the story of Mike Tyson, and he went to prison for a while, and all these things. And then you get to the end of the story, and Mike Tyson is like in his mid to late 50s now, and, and he's in tears telling the story, and his counselor is there telling the story of what happened. And he's awakened to the reality that his story in his early life shaped his story in his middle life, and he now has the awareness in order to go back and say, you know what, those are the things that happened in my life. Life. Now, I want to talk about this with you. I'm not saying Mike Tyson is a Christian, but here's what I'm saying, is that our stories can shape what we do and how we live and, and how we act in our adulthood. The things that happen to you as a child shape and inform your life as an adult. Neuroscientists tell us this, that there are two kinds of memories that we have. There are explicit memories and there are implicit memories. Do you know what these are? An explicit memory is this. It, it is the memories of the events of your life, the, the things that you can recall, uh, the, the things that happened to you. The, the explicit memory is me remembering running away at six years old. I remember the events. I remember the house. I remember my room. I remember my friend's house. I remember all of it. That is uh, an explicit memory. It's stored in the front of your brain. But did you know that you also have implicit memories? And implicit memories are not the ones that you remember the events, uh, but, but, but your brain still records them, and they are stored not in the front part of your brain, they're stored in the back of your brain. They're stored in the, the basal ganglia. They're stored deep down in the recesses of your brain. These implicit memories, this is what's interesting, is that these are the things that, that, that often happen to you between zero and two. You ever think like, you know, you, you see a, a little infant and you think, well, they don't, they don't really like, they, they're not going to remember things. I remember Brianne and I going to a movie, maybe it's a PG-13 movie, and someone carrying their three-month-old into the theater, and we're always looking at it like, what do you think you're doing? Like, you know, or setting them in front of the TV. But, but listen, even as a child, even as a baby, the things that are, are being written on your brain, your memories, it's just not the ones that you remember. They're stored down into the deep recesses of your brain. The classic example is that uh, uh, an adult woman uh, flinches every time a big dog comes up to her, uh, and then she finds out when she was an infant, a dog attacked her or bit her, and she doesn't remember the events explicitly, but her body remembers it implicitly. And even these implicit memories begin to shape our life. So Moses, even as a baby, remembers being crying in, implicitly in the reeds of the Nile River. And we've got to invite God into the stories of our life. 
We've got to invite Jesus into the stories of our life. And when you know your story, you can actually allow Jesus to begin to heal your story. A lot of people want to live in denial of the reality of what happened to them, the pain and trauma they experienced. And my journey and my life and my awakening in this season is inviting God into the, all the brokenness of my life and my past. You know, when I came to Jesus, I thought, oh, my past is my past. I'm never going to see it again. Right? The interesting thing is the Bible doesn't say that. Your sins don't count against you in the future, but it's not like your past is gone. You are a new creation, but that old man still rears its head. Right, it's why Paul says that sometimes I do what I, I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Like this is the Apostle Paul, the greatest church planner ever. We've got to know our story. We've got to understand our past. We've got to see how our journey takes us to this point. I want to take this a little deeper uh, as we, we I'm going to close uh, with this, is, is that there's two stages to knowing your story. The first stage is to actually know the narrative and story and events of your life. The second stage is to know how your story fits in with God's story. Because your story does fit in with God's story. And your story doesn't get sanitized, it doesn't get erased. God actually uses the things that happen to you in your future and that becomes a new narrative that is written for your life. You fit in with God's story and all your experiences can be used by God. You're going to see major transformation in, in Moses' life in the next few weeks where he finds God or God finds him. And you're going to see this radical transformation where God is speaking to him in a burning bush. And he's like, who, who are you? Like, I don't even know your name. Like, you aren't Yahweh yet. There's none of that. It's just like some, you know, transcendent being speaking out of a burning bush. You know, if that was me, I'd think I'd be hallucinating, right? I'm out in the desert. And these things begin to happen to Moses is Moses is no longer defined by the circumstances of his life. In fact, the circumstances of his life are used by God. And the things that we would think were dysfunctions and even growing up in a home, looking different than everyone else, being an Egyptian home while being Hebrew, even play to his advantage. Moses was dealt a bad hand. Moses was dealt a bad hand. He was dealt a pair of twos. You know what? I think some of you here, you've been dealt a bad hand. You, 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 you have trauma. You have pain. You have abuse in your past. You have hurts. You have wounds. You have things that have happened. You've been dealt a bad hand. You've been dealt a pair of twos. But let me tell you this. We serve a God who can win with a pair of twos. We serve a God who takes those twos and turns them into aces. We serve a God that can take anyone's pain and anyone's story and anyone's life and turn that to be used for the greatest good. Can somebody say amen? That is the God that we serve. We can look at Moses' anger and we can say, you know what? Anyone who did that today would disqualify them from being used by God. 
We'd say that. If you found out that anyone in this room murdered somebody and buried the body, you'd say, how can you ever be used by God at all? You should go to prison. You should be punished. You should have the consequence. Listen, the, the things that Moses did doesn't just, does not disqualify him for the work of God in the future. It actually qualifies him. Not that he murdered somebody, but that he had anger in his heart, a holy discontentment about what was happening to Israel at the time. And so God used that. God says, I can use anger like that. I could use, I can use anger like that. And I can use that for my kingdom. And I can use that to set two million people free. And all along we're thinking Moses is dysfunctional. And his dysfunction over, overflows into anger. And God says, I can use that. In fact, he says, those are the exact kind of people and the kind of things that I like to use. And I can redeem that. And I can pull that in close. It's interesting. I find this, I find this fascinating. And I'm, I'm gonna, this is gonna be like six or seven weeks in, but, I, I, but I, just, I just want you to put this in your mind. Moses never gets to the promised land. You know that. If you don't know the story, Moses never gets to the promised land. He never gets to Israel, right? The land of Canaan. Never even steps foot across the Jordan River. He, Joshua does it, his protege. Do you know why Moses never gets to the promised land? Because he took his staff and he struck a rock in anger. And so the murder didn't disqualify him from seeing the promised land. It was striking a rock in disobedience and lack of faith. I'm going to go into that more. But I want you to catch that. It is not always what you think that disqualifies you from being used by God or seeing the plans and purposes of God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God loves to take your pain and turn it into purpose. He loves to take your problems and turn them into his plan for your life. You've just got to be willing to allow him to do that. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you close your eyes? Some of us might be asking, how does my story fit in with God's story? Well, let me tell you that let me tell you what God's story is and the story of the scriptures and story of God. It, it can be told with four words. The entire Bible can be summed up in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created the world. Mankind sinned and fell away from God. God redeemed the world through Jesus Christ and he's going to restore the world, a new creation. And what's interesting is all of us have a four-part story. We have a creation story. We have a fall story. We have a redemption story. We have a restoration story. The question is, where are you in that journey and where are you in that story? Some of you might be in that redemption restoration story. You've been in church for a while. Some of you might be between that fall and redemption, that you're searching for a home and you're searching for God and you're searching for him to satisfy your soul and you've been maybe looking in the wrong things, but it's time to come home to Jesus, time to come home to God, time to put your faith and trust and the one true God who can actually heal your heart and take your past and turn it into his purpose for your future. 
The question isn't, do you have a story? The question is, what is your story and where are you in that journey? And I want to ask you this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you for a response. Maybe some of you are in a season where you've ran away from God and it's time to come back. And running away from God can look a a lot of different ways. It can just be busy with life. It doesn't mean going to the bar every single night and throwing your life away and doing all these. It it could just be ignoring God in your hearts. Maybe some of you are in that place where you've ran from God and it's time to come back. Maybe some of you, you've never made that commitment before. Maybe you've gone to church or maybe you've heard about God and heard about Jesus, but the decision has never been yours and it's never been real and it's never been true. And you're here today and you say, you know what? I want to make that commitment. I want to draw close to Jesus in this season. And so I'm going to ask you to lift your hand if that's you in just a moment. If you're far from God and you feel like you've been lost and you want to come back to God, maybe you've never made that choice with every head bowed and every eye closed. If that's you, I just want you to lift up your hand this morning. Come on, lift up your hand if that's you. Amen. I see your hand. I see your hand. Anyone else? I see your hand to my left in the back. Anyone else? I see your hand in the back. I see your hand in the back. Anyone else? Man. Those of you who lifted your hand, As you come back to God, God comes to you. That is the story of scripture, that God always comes to you. That he came from heaven in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, to get into your heart and get into your life. And so your life will be forever changed in this moment. Your life will be forever changed and different. And your journey from here on out is to keep pressing into the things of God. And it doesn't mean that the brokenness goes away in an instant. It means that you get to work through that, holding the hands of Jesus Christ along the way. God, we praise you. We honor you. And we love you. And everyone said, amen.